On Raising Rare, we are bringing you the stories of parents learning how to raise a child with a rare disease. Our co-hosts, Sanath Kumar Ramesh and Brittany Ratke, parents of rare disease kiddos who have very different situations. Sanath's son Raghav has an ultra-rare disorder known as Setagatian-type spondial metaphysial dysplasia, or SSMD. Brittany's daughter Everly has been diagnosed with SET-D5, a mutation that carries with it the potential for a range of complications and even other diagnoses. My name is Kevin Fryert. After 30 years doing research and development at Pfizer, I started Salem Oaks to help patients and caregivers understand the world of biopharmaceutical R&D. Our goal on Raising Rare is to help and lift up our listeners by sharing the unfolding stories of these two families. We also feature the stories of other rare disease families, clinicians, researchers, and industry leaders in the rare disease community. If you'd like to follow these parent stories, please subscribe to Raising Rare on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome back to Raising Rare. You may have noticed that we have changed our frequency and now publishing closer to about once a month. Today we are speaking with Gary David. Dr. David is a professor, a rare dad, and a fellow podcaster. He's going to share about the intersection of his lived experience, academic interests, and challenges of raising a rare child. Before we get started, Sonneth, how's Raghav doing? He's doing wonderful um, and stable. Uh, he has been uh, at home for most days this this month and, and next month mainly due to holidays around Thanksgiving and Christmas. Um, he wrapped up one episode of Cold, uh, which was stressful. Uh, we think he might be getting into another episode of Cold. I don't know. I think this flu season has just not been uh, that kind to us. But regardless, uh, we are going to visit uh, an animal farm today. Uh, super excited to go see bunnies and uh, donkeys and horses. Oh, wow. That sounds like fun. Does he like animals like that? Have you taken him before? Oh, yeah. Uh, we went once last year when he didn't quite understand what's going on. Um, so this year we've been preparing him by teaching him animal signs, uh, showing pictures of animals and making sounds of different animals. And so now he has more context uh, to correlate. I, I think he'll he'll really enjoy this time. That's my guess. Well, we'll see. Oh, yeah, it's fun. So why don't you get us started and uh, start talking to Gary. Gary, thank you so much for joining us here on this podcast. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself, um, your daughter, um, and the rest of your family? Sure. Well, th- first of all, thanks for having me and thanks for doing this podcast. Uh, it would have been great 16 years ago to have this kind of resource available. Uh, so, you know, as I started, my family started on our journey, you know, in terms of having a child with a rare condition. It's one of those things I describe as winning the lottery that no one wants to buy a ticket for. Um, but nevertheless, there you are. So a little bit about myself really quickly. I'm a professor of sociology I had a private business school called Bentley University, just outside of Boston. I also teach courses on experience design, which can include, amongst other things, patient experience and healthcare experience. And I also do a podcast called Experience by Design, where we explore a lot of different areas of experience design, including patient and healthcare experience, which I can say being intimately familiar with healthcare serves as a tremendous resource but I wish I didn't have that expertise. <laughs> so it's it's wonderful to have that knowledge, but at the same time, no one really wants no one wants to be doing genetics research after their child's born. <laughs> so that, that's where I found myself. A little bit about my daughter, as you know, a little bit of a segue there. She has something called trisomy 13 mosaicism. Very quickly, for those familiar with trisomic trisomic disorders or conditions, she has an extra 13th chromosome. Now, what separates her from Patau syndrome, which is all cells have a 13th chromosome extra. Only some of her cells have an extra 13th chromosome. So what that means is really uncertain and unclear in terms of the impacts that that can have. 
We were told after she was born, she'll be between, she'll be somewhere in between severely disabled and normal functioning. And that was like a day three of her life. <laughs> so we can get into to that little bit of uncertainty introduction, but also I have two other children, a 17 year old daughter and a 13 year old daughter as well. So three kids, three daughters. And I, if I had any sons, I wouldn't know what to do with them because I find sons very intimidating because they tend to be full of energy. And I don't know what to do with that after having daughters. I have two daughters and I decided after two, I wasn't gonna go down four to one in the house. So we, we stopped there. And well, people would ask me, you know, when, when my wife was pregnant with our third child, are you hoping for a son? And I say, God, no, I know how to deal with daughters. I see little boys and they're, they're, they're frankly quite frightening because they appear psychotic. I don't know if at any point that, that breeds out of them <laughs> as they grow up, but you know, I'm a sociologist. I deal in nurture more than nature, but after having daughters and looking at, you know, little boys, there is something to be said for nature as well. So tell me a little bit more about trisomy 13. You, go, you know, how does it affect her medically? And I'm really interested in the mosaicism. What, what are the theories for how that comes about, that only some of the cells are impacted? Well, let's start with the, the second thing first. So I'm not a geneticist. I have a, you know, my PhD is in sociology. But having done, and there's not a ton of research out there on mosaicism. But some of the reading that I've done, because when you're confronted with these new things, you know, especially for me as an academic, I'm like, well, what is this and what am I dealing with or what are we dealing with? And there's a couple of theories, right? One is, you know, this idea that certain cell lines, when they're subdividing, uh, become, you know, an extra chromosome, you know, either appears or mutates during the subdivision process. There's also a theory of cell recovery that maybe perhaps it started out as a full trisomy and then the body was correcting or recovering. And again, don't, please don't anybody take this as medical information because I assure you, I got a C in biology in ninth grade and that was a gift. So I probably don't know entirely what I'm talking about there, but those are generally speaking, some of the larger theories regarding how this develops in terms of the impacts. Again, it's highly variable because it depends on what cell lines, what percentage, other probably, you know, environmental factors that impact any child. One of the things that we were told after by other parents, because we were diagnosed basically three days after she was born, there was no honeymoon period. But I've been told by other parents how lucky we were that we got the diagnosis so quickly because she was able to get services right away. She's been in early intervention services since three months old. She has been able to develop and evolve fairly well as a, as a young lady, in part because of the variability of her condition, but also because we've just lucky where we live, we have tremendous services and we didn't have to fight for any of them. That, that comes, I think, with a hard diagnosis that's indisputable right? That you can just look at a karyotype and it's easily identifiable. There was no searching, wondering, exploring, journeying. It was just right away, bam, this is what she has. What it means, we don't know, but this is what I describe as the first baby gift we received because it allowed, it unlocked the doors to a lot of services and a lot of access to resources that I know a lot of parents have to fight for. Did the diagnosis happen? Did you did 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 the doctors do a clinical diagnosis, or did you get uh, a genetic testing, like uh, an exome sequencing done? Yeah, we had a karyotype, and it was just kind of, you know, she had some other morphological features, what's called polydactyly and syndactyly, the presence of an extra digit, not necessarily associated with a rare condition, right? People, if you do research on this, kids are born with amazing frequency, more than you would expect with extra digits. Um, so that didn't necessarily, we knew that in utero that there was a presence of that, but um, there was no indication of anything else being wrong. After she was born, she was having difficulty feeding. Again, not necessarily unique, uh, but there were certain warning signs that, that the doctor saw that re resulted in her being transferred from one hospital into Mass General Hospital into the NICU. 
And so two days after she was born or so, I went to the hospital expecting to take her home. And I ended up following an ambulance from Concord, Massachusetts to Boston, Massachusetts. Uh, and, you know, and going to the NICU. And that started our journey of having her entirely evaluated, which identified or surfaced other things that were not significant, right? You know, she has a bicuspid aortic valve. Okay, fine. A lot of people probably have that, but they don't know it because they never had the testing. So we had a complete workup, which resulted in different things being identified, which were pretty minor. But the big thing was this diagnosis of trisomy 13 mosaicism and the uncertainty of she'll be between normal functioning and severely disabled. Best of luck to you. So is the state of the art around trisomies and mosaicism, are they able to tell which cell types now have the, have the trisomy and which don't, or isn't it that far advanced? Uh, when we got to, I don't know about now, because this was 16 years ago, and we didn't go back for a genetics consult because the geneticist was so awful, which I'm happy to talk about. Um, but the, we, at the time, they didn't do a full examination of all the different cell lines. And again, I'm again got a C in biology, so don't ask me what the, all that means. But we they didn't do that extensive of testing. We could have that done, but at a certain point, it's like, well, why bother, right? I mean, it's not like what do we do with that? And so we have, we're already dealing with cardiac consults. We're do you know deal with neurological consults. We're dealing with behavioral consults. We're dealing with um, you know orthopedic consults, right? There's a lot of things going on, you know, ophthalmological consults that do I, is this gonna help me at all? Or is it just going to answer questions that really aren't relevant to her clinical care? Do you know what I mean? So at a certain point, you're just kind of like, okay, fine. We're gonna set that to the side, unimportant, really. And we're just gonna focus on the things we have to focus on because that's all the bandwidth we have available are the things we have to deal with, not the things that might be interesting, but aren't necessarily consequential for her clinical care. That it's a crucial decision point uh, for me uh, along the way where, where, where I was focusing a lot on research, just primarily on research and shifted uh, a little bit more towards clinical care um, and then shifted again towards uh, plain quality of life improvements, uh, like you talked about, getting services through early intervention, physical therapy, occupation therapy, making sure we stay on top of appointments, uh, making sure their health and their day-to-day -day functioning and uh, happiness uh, does does not ever go down. Uh, that's a full-time job, sure. Yeah, and, and as a parent, you kind of want to flip to the end of the book, right? You want to get to the point where you know how the story is going to come out. And I think that's true for obviously for any parent. The difference is when you have a child with a rare condition, you don't know how that story is going to end and there's very little to go by on what it might look like. And so you're left with this tremendous uncertainty, which also leads to anxiety, with all, which also leads to trying to wrest control through information and knowledge. But you really can't control that, right? We can only control, we can control so little about children anyway, but especially in these situations. So rather than getting into, you know, rabbit holes of medical literature, which by the way, there wasn't much on trisomy 13 mosaicism to begin with, it was more about the day-to-day. -day. And oh, by the way, I have another child at the time right, that also exists and needs my attention. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, it's a tricky balance. How is your, how is your daughter doing, by the way? Uh, you know, that's an interesting question because it, I always think about what's the comparison to, right? And so we ask somebody to evaluate anything. We usually don't do it in isolation of that one thing. We do it in comparison to others. And this is me as a sociologist talking now and as an experienced designer. So compared to her peers who are in her special education programs, I can say things like, well, she's verbal. She's ambulatory. She can self-care. She can self-feed. She, she can talk about her needs. She can engage socially with others. She can co-play. So we start to think, we start to talk in these very uh, clinical descriptors, right? And then I can, so she's doing great compared to a lot of people I know who are facing greater challenges. But then I compare her to her age peers 
And then that becomes a different description of, you know, she doesn't get asked out with friends um, to sleepovers. She doesn't, uh, well, she did go to homecoming with one of the kids in her special education group. So that was kind of cool. But, you know, there are things, she, you know, she's 16. She's not going to be able to drive. She's not thinking about colleges. She's not thinking, you know, so there's a lot of things that as a parent of a child with a rare condition, how she's doing depends on what frame I use. And that becomes a tricky bit of business, doesn't it? You know, how, what's the framing that I need to use and how that simple question of how's your daughter doing? I, I, I think all parents with, with kids with rare conditions take a pause to think about how am I going to answer this and how much detail do I want to go into? <laughs> uh, very familiar with that dichotomy. Uh, I, I, I personally use um, a self-comparator as my frame of reference. I only want to know how he is doing today in, in relation to how he was a month ago. Uh, and that's as long as that slope is always going up and to the right. I'm I'm happy. Yeah, that's the thing that's really healthy. I mean, I just like yesterday was kind of funny because along with all this other stuff that's going on, she also has OCD or ASD, autistic spectrum disorder behaviors, and she couldn't find this one particular you know item that she was needing, and this took up a big chunk of Thanksgiving for my wife was trying to find that thing. And I would like, I'm I'm happy to report that I swooped in and saved the day today because I found it. I found this item. So that slope is absolutely going up and to the right because the the obsessive behavior on that one item has uh, been solved. And now we can just look forward to what the next obsessive behavior might be and then deal with that, whatever that's going to be. Congratulations. That's a good Thanksgiving. Yeah, so we have a little bit of a respite. Ah, oh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm the, I am the hero right now. I might as well have a big like S on my chest because I really did uh, save the day. Is it St. Anthony? Is that the one people, you know, to find missing things, you know, maybe? Yeah, lost causes. You know? Lost causes? <laughs> um, <laughs> so what's really interesting talking to you is that We've had many guests whose professional or educational life experiences kind of got them ready for this. You have such an interesting mix of, of what your professional life is, what your academic life is. You, you're a professor in two different areas. How have you brought that to bear in, in managing your daughter's life and how you guys you know, grow as a family? It was funny that as we were dealing with this situation when she was born, she was born in September you know, in the month of September, and I was teaching at the time. And I was happened to be teaching a PhD class on uh, basically the psychology and sociology of work and organizations. And I was immediately able to incorporate my institutional experiences and organizational experiences into the class <laughs> because you can see in real life how these theoretical or conceptual questions of how organizations and institutions operate are directly experienced in real life when you have to kind of dig into them. And so, it, it, you know, there's, there's a lot of ways to unpack that, but I would say more simply that thinking about, well, my, our pediatrician said something really tremendous when we went and saw him with our daughter. And I, he had a lot of experiences as a pediatrician. And he said, I said to him, have you ever seen this before? And he said, nope, never seen this before. Uh, he said, but... I'm not going to rely on anything that's written that you couldn't tell me. Basically letting us know that my primary source of information is you because we're dealing with your daughter as a person, not as a syndrome, not as a condition, not as a disease, right? And if, you, you know, if we were going to put a frame on that, we can talk about patient experience from a human-centered perspective, Okay as an analytical frame. If I was teaching a class on this, that's how I would talk about it. He just was able to do that because that's his demeanor. And, and then one of the things he said to us was, um, you know, I'm gonna tell you not to go look online and you're gonna go look online. But just keep in mind when you look online, the cases you find online are usually the worst cases because if a child is doing well, no one posts about that online. Right, and so again, you think about how we construct information sharing and knowledge sharing and patient health literacy, and what and in the age of technology, 
that's a frame, analytical frame I could use to talk about that experience. And of course, the paper I wrote called Dealing with the Diagnosis around sociology of diagnosis, that when you achieve, when you receive a diagnosis, you're not just receiving a clinical designation, you're acquiring an identity and a belonging to a group. And there's tremendous importance in that as a part of a journey, because while diagnosis might be thought of as bad news by many, for people who have children with rare conditions, it can be a relief because now you have, at least you have a name and you have an understanding that provides some answers to questions that you have, but no one has been able to resolve. Yeah, you think of the people who are in that undiagnosed group. They belong to that group, but what is that group? It's a short-lived group, right? Hopefully, you get a diagnosis and you move out of that group into the diagnosed group. And it's a, a big relief for people. And it's not just parents with kids. It's adults who have rare disease who, you know, finally, someone gave it a name. And it has a name. So now I can see what, what's really known about it. I can do a, you know, an online search that actually targets the name. Um, it's just, it's so Refreshing to hear you talking about this in this clinical academic way, but knowing that, that you're living this too, that you're, that everything you say is, is informed by that. I just, I really enjoy it. I just wanted to comment on that. One of the things we talked about, and it's in your paper, is the, the similarity to finding out your child has a rare disease and living that life how it's similar to recovery. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, so in terms of recovery, uh, you know, 12-step recovery work, um, I grew up in a alcoholic household. So in recovery terms, I am an adult child of an alcoholic or an adult child. And it wasn't until maybe six years ago, I started going to an organization called Al-Anon, which is an organization and a group for friends and family members uh, experiencing the effects of alcoholism through their association with a loved one or a friend or you know someone in their life. And that could be a person who's currently suffering from the disease of alcoholism. And I, I call it a disease in terms of or, you know, how we talk about it in the, in the group, right? And so there might be those who don't agree with that classification of a disease, and that's fine. But in the recovery work, whether AA or adult children of alcoholics or Al-Anon, we talk about as a, as a family disease. And one of the things that that allowed me to think about was turning, you know, the powerlessness on you know, the first step in recovery work, whether narcotics anonymous or any of these kinds of groups, is we admitted we were powerless over alcohol. Our lives had become unmanageable. I have to admit I was powerless over the effects of this condition and that my life and my family's lives had become unmanageable because of the ways in which everything we were doing was focusing in on that thing. And that's very similar, at least in my experiences and in recovery work, we can only speak about our experiences. It was very similar to my father's alcoholism in that everything became focused on that. What kind of mood was he in? <clears throat> Had he been drinking? Was he emotionally dysregulated? Um, you know, what time was he going to come home? Was he going to ruin Christmas, right? All of these things became about his behavior. That's not very different, in my experience, from focusing in on a child's behavior who's dealing with a condition. What's vacation going to be like? What's the holiday going to be like? Are we going to, you know, can we go out as a couple and leave the child at home with a sitter or somebody or a family member? And when I kind of had this epiphany that, oh my God, you know, I'm, I'm re-experiencing my childhood through this family situation, it really reoriented my thinking around using the resources of recovery to manage my own reactions. And for something like Al-Anon, we don't join Al-Anon to fix the alcoholic in our lives. We do it to fix ourselves. I can't fix my daughter's condition. All I can do is focus on my reaction to that condition. And that's when we talk about let it begin with me, that's where I need to start. 
I have to put, I have to do self-care and that's often as a parent really difficult to do. I have to focus on myself a bit as a parent that can be really difficult to do. But if I don't do that, I'm going to be in a worse position to meet the needs of others if I don't meet my needs first. And for parents who have children with rare conditions, that can be really hard because it feels really selfish. But there needs to be, don't confuse selfless, selfishness with self-care. <laughs> and that's something I learned through recovery. This is thoroughly fascinating. Uh, and I want to dive quite a bit deeper here. Um, to give you some context, uh, just like many other rare parents, um, we've had our fair share, fair share of mental health challenges. I shouldn't say had, are continuing to have. And, and the challenges change in nature uh, and shape and form as time goes by, as we get presented with different life situations. Um, the My initial reaction to managing those was um, numbness, I should say. It's just like numb the whole thing out and don't feel anything, right? Uh, obviously, it's a very poor technique um, because eventually it just builds up and your body keeps the score and it bites you back. Um, I've generally thought of management in this situation and never thought of recovery um, because as you said, and I think it's in your paper, um, you are when you're handed over a diagnosis, you're being given a roadmap to the middle of the forest but never given a pathway to come out of it, right? You are in there and you can never come out. It's your new home. And so I've always thought of being there in the middle of the forest, managing and fighting all the demons as a management activity um, and never as a recovery activity because recovery essentially means you have a pathway back to home, back to where you came from. And so just conceptually help me understand how the recovery framework still applies to something that can never be recovered or got, gotten back to the original state? What you're, what's a great question. What you're asking me reminds me of the TV show Naked and Afraid, which might be the weirdest segue ever on this podcast, but we'll, we'll, we'll run with it. So if anybody's not familiar with this show Naked and Afraid, these two individuals are kind of dumped off in the middle of nowhere um, with no clothes on and like one item and they have to kind of, you know, live or survive for like 21 days or something like that. And so if you think about the notion of how do we take care of our own needs, there are certain primary needs we need to take care of. Shelter, food, if it's cold, heat, right? And um, maybe clothing or some kind of protection of our skin, okay? Those are fundamental primary needs. If we spend all of our time in the middle of this forest, merely reacting to threats that arise, we're never going to be proacting in a way of meeting our needs and ensuring a better chance for our survival. So rather than trying to find a way out of the forest, what about if we focus on building a better home in the forest by meeting the needs we have, rather than just managing the crisis, starting to proactively meet needs. And so I think with recovery work that, you know, I'm, I'm never not going to be an adult child of an alcoholic. Okay. I'm never not going to be, I'm never not going to be a parent of a child with a rare condition. I'm always going to be that. The So there's no way out of that. The question then becomes, how do I build a better now through the steps, the work, the slogans, the community, right? In order to establish a life that is not reactionary, but that is proactionary. That is looking to be affirmative or affirmational in a certain direction, rather than, you know, on building on strengths that exist, rather than thinking about the things that aren't there and the struggles that I'm having. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, two key takeaways that, um, are, 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 are a frame shift for me are that even in recovery, you don't go back to the person that was prior to the event. Uh, you don't go back to the person that was prior to becoming an alcoholic. You're just, you're a new person now, right? And kind of applying that to the forest analogy, I, I really liked how you said, let's build a new home in the middle of the forest so that your basic needs are met 
and you start a new life, uh, it's not about going back to the original life that you had before um, the, the incident that the kid was ever born. It's hard. It's very hard. Yep. Um, I mean, on, mm-hmm. a, on, a, on a daily basis or maybe even an hourly basis, uh, I go through this challenge uh, and a part of me always wants to go back to um, 10 years ago when my life looked like it was just uh, amazing, right? Um, and so how do you shift, how, how do you battle that demon? And, and what has helped you in, in this process to, to rebuild this new home here? If I knew how to do it on my on my own, I wouldn't be in recovery, right? I mean, that's the first thing. Um, the you know, there you know, I, I think about the third step, okay, in any recovery twelve step recovery program. Made a decision to turn our will and our lives to the care of God as we understood Him or Her. And when we talk about God, it's not necessarily religious; it's it's a God of our understanding. The, for me, and I've written a blog about this. The power in recovery doesn't come in how I individually work the steps and work the program. It comes from the connections and the community I've formed through the program, okay? And so going to meetings becomes an essential element of recovery work, not because I need people to, you know, to um, check in on me per se, but I need people to, I need to connect with people because it's through their strength, hope, and recovery that I can derive a pathway for my strength, hope, and recovery. We don't have that as parents, or at least I don't have that. I mean, we don't see a lot of, especially for, 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 for uh, fathers, because I think, you know, men and women in their respective parenting roles deal with these things differently. And, you know, that's part of, that's part socialization. And that's also part biology. Finding that support in and through others. I remember when our daughter first started playing sports in connection with whether it would be um, Best Buddies or Special Olympics or what we call Unified Sports or the Miracle League here in Boston. And we could just talk to other parents. And it was like, oh my God, this is amazing that we can have these shorthand conversations about our struggles in our lives. And there's no buddy feeling sorry for me, right? There's not, oh, but you know, she's so special. And like that tone you get, right? When you're talking to parents whose kids are so normal functioning. Oh, I, oh, it's so, yeah, I know they mean well, but you're like, I can't do this. Um, you know, it becomes really hard where you're just having very frank conversations about, you know, oh, you know, my child is, you know, still not potty trained or my child, you know, I, I was talking, I had a, went to a 5k yesterday. I was talking with some parents we know whose child um, is autistic and you're like, yeah, we're having a really hard time because so-and-so is putting holes in walls and, you know, really violent. Hope you have a good Thanksgiving. Yeah, you too. I mean, like you can, there's no judgment. There's no defensiveness. There's no feeling sorry for. It's like, oh yeah, that, that's, that's, you know, yeah, I can imagine that must be really, really difficult. Okay, talk to you later, right? And you can just have these moments. And I found the same thing in recovery meetings. There's no judgment. There's just sharing and people kind of know and understand. And it's being able to know that other people know and understand, especially for new parents, I think is such a tremendous, could be such a tremendous resource. And I've seen this as I go out to conferences or even, you know, talking with Sanath on, on these periodic discussions. As you meet people, it strengthens you. And what you talked about, the shorthand there, you, people can have the conversation. I remember talking to Bo Bigelow, and he said they, they had like 15 people that came together in this meeting of people with USP7, Hell Fountain Syndrome now. And they didn't even talk. They just were with each other. They didn't need to talk. They didn't need to fill that, that space that, that people with typical children you know, would need to fill. And you mentioned something else, which is something for fathers. At Global Genes this past year, they, they really focused on mental health. And one of our future guests is going to be um, from Angel Aid Cares. And it's, it's a whole group to help moms have that community to talk to other moms. There isn't one for dads that I see. No, I don't think so. And there's, you know, one of the sayings from recovery is essentially wherever two shall meet, right? 
I mean, that's a meeting, wherever two shall meet. And so this notion of coming together under the, you know, the, the, the small R rituals or the big R rituals, depending upon the type of meeting you go to, just being there in, in community and that being like a higher power, right? Because there's this notion of, at least in the United States, e pluribus unum, out of many one, and the sum is being greater than its parts. And so by coming together, we are not just two people coming together, sharing our strength, hope, recovery. We are much more than that because we're engaged in this larger healing process. And it is a process that's based on progress, not perfection. Um, parenting is hard no matter what, right? I mean, it's not an easy trip if the best of circumstances. And we can, we can never be perfect parents. We can only try to be better parents tomorrow than we were today. And so it's, parenting is always about progress, not perfection. And we need to focus in on that when we are parents with children who have rare conditions or special needs, because we are going to do things that we regret. <laughs> we are going to have thoughts that we regret. We are going to have moments that we wish we didn't have. Rather than judging ourselves too harshly, finding an opportunity to share with others who aren't going to judge you to allow that moment to pass and then figure out how to have better moments in the future. That's what recovery is about. Okay. And I think that especially for, for parents and in just speaking as a father for fathers, they would be tremendous if there were other opportunities. And that's why I like talking about recovery and being a parent, because I think there's a lot to learn from the recovery process that we can apply to parenting that can help us recover in our roles as parents. Uh, I know we've dived quite a bit deep into the recovery world, but I want to ask one more question. Um, so you've, 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 you're currently engaged in the recovery process um, with a community of folks that, that have had interactions with alcoholism, right? Um, but obviously, uh, you have another part of you that is emotionally and mentally impacting you, which is the rare disease child and the diagnosis and the challenges uh, that you face because of it. How does this cross-connection work? Um, do you end up talking about your personal journey with your child and the challenges at, the, um, uh, at your recovery group? Um, or are you able to you know, just use those um, conversations as a jumping off point to help you yourself in uh, your recovery for uh, uh, your child's situation? Yeah, I absolutely talked about it in my Al-Anon home group. And we talk about a home group being the main group you go to. And I also go to, I occasionally go to AA open meetings, even though I'm not an alcoholic. Um, and I go to adult children of alcoholic meetings as well. One of the things that I realized as an adult child was that I grew up in a situation where I saw uh, an abusive personality basically take over my family in a harmful way. And I was too young to do anything about that. All right. And so I, I was pretty helpless watching it. So you kind of, as an adult child, you grow up with this, what's called a white knight syndrome that I need to save people, right? I need to save others. And what I saw myself doing was almost orienting to my child as if she was my father. That here's this disruptive influence on my life. If only my father didn't drink, we'd be happy. If only my child was born normal, we'd be happier, right? So I was orienting to my child in this way without even realizing it. And I was trying to protect my wife. I was trying to protect my other kids. I was trying to protect my family by trying to control the outcomes of her condition. You can't make someone not be an alcoholic, right? You can't make someone not have a rare condition. <laughs> and so rather than trying to save everybody and control the situation, I needed to accept. <laughs> I needed to move to acceptance, right? Um, there's, a three, there's three C's in recovery. I didn't cause it, can't control it, and can't cure it. How, how, tell me oh, that yeah, those they, don't apply they, to having they, a rare they disease. Hundred percent. <laughs> they apply hundred percent. And as you were talking through that um, cross connection, and it just makes so much sense. I didn't grow up in a in 
uh, in, a, in a similar household, but I can tell you that my behaviors have been quite similar, right? I want to protect my family. I want to go back to the state of the world uh, that it would be if my son didn't have any of these challenges. Um, quite often, I, I think about what it would be, how, how cool it would be to, to just dial the clock back. If, if there was a time machine that was invented, I sometimes even go crazy enough to think about taking the money that I fundraised for his research and investing in time machine uh, science research <laughs> and those kind of things, right? Obviously, these are crazy behaviors that don't make any sense, but it seems quite natural. Now, what's hard, and 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 this, this piece is something that I haven't really quite understood yet, is what happens once you get to acceptance? It feels like a terminal state, but it is not. It is... It is it is not a terminal state. It is it is a state where it's homeostasis, right? It's a state where you stay in equilibrium for a very long time. But I don't even know what it means and no one really teaches you what it means. So this is, uh, I'd love to know if you have any tips there, but uh, I know we've gotten too deep in this. I don't know what we have, honestly, because this is one of the central questions of powerlessness, right? Acceptance and powerlessness. That when, again, when people come to Al-Anon, they often come thinking they're going to change the alcoholic and they want to know, how do I, how do I fix it? Right? I want to fix it. I need to fix this. Well, there's no fixing it, right? Number, well, at least with an alcoholic, and this is what difference between like maybe a disease and a, and a syndrome, um, you know, I can't fix this. You know, if there was a disease, like if a child has cancer, can, you know, is there a cure? Well, there's no cure for what my daughter has, right? And so th- there's nothing to be done other than try to give her the best life possible and also to give the rest of my family and myself the best life possible. And what, what does that mean? I can't tell you what your, what your path means. And I, you can't tell me what my, all, what mine is. All I can do is share what works for me and what has worked for me, understanding that I'm, you know, it's, it's still a process of recovery. I know people who've been in recovery for 30 years, you know, and they're still trying to figure it out, but at least they're trying to figure it out versus doing the behaviors that they used to do, which were not helpful to anybody. So I think that, you know, the, the part of acceptance is, turn, you know, especially with the third step, the first three steps are powerlessness, right? I need to accept help. And the next, you know, nine steps are how do I as a person improve? And that's, the, 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 that's where I think that that road to recovery, you know, for parents, and this is why I'm working on giving a t- you know talk at a conference on a rare condition conference. Hopefully, I get accepted to it to talk about what might that look like. How 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 might we apply? And I, I'm a design thinker, right? How might we apply the experience from recovery work into the experiences of recovery for parents who have children with rare conditions? This is amazing. And that's that's a topic that I would, uh, if it was a book, I would just pre-order it right now on this call. Um, let me know. <laughs> uh, because I feel like uh, there's a lot of work on trauma, on uh, mental health issues. Uh, there's a lot of work on on deconstructing what happens when people go through these um, complex PTSD situations where it's, it's essentially trauma that you can never get out of. You're just being injured over and over again. You can learn from um, similar complex PTSD situations from others uh, and, and so on. But And they generally talk about solutions as, you know, either medical interventions or mental health interventions as, as sort of uh, the recommendation and stop there. Now, what's missing from this literature, as far as I've seen, and, and I, I should admit I have not seen a deep bit of the literature, is what does the world look like for this person and for the collection of these people once they are in that recovery process? And how long does this take? And what, how, what transformations does a person go through? And I would love to find a more scientific, structured way of explaining that, because that, I always find these, these, these structures very, very helpful in understanding where I am in that journey. One of the things that was interesting, uh, Wednesday night, we had a recovery meeting, or like, well, we have it every Wednesday night, my Al-Anon meeting, which is hybrid, which is great now, so we can meet in person. And people who saw me when I first showed up five or five years ago or six years ago, they were like, you were really angry then, and you are completely different now. And 
sometimes when you're in the middle of yourself, that can be hard to see, right? That I was a, I'm a different person today than I was then. And not only am I a different person, but I'm a better person. I'm a better person, better parent, better partner, better professor. That's a lot of P's. You can think about some more P's potentially. I'm better, right? doesn't mean I'm all better. <laughs> That's why we talk about progress, not perfection. And I don't know that our journey of self-discovery and healing ever ends because there's always new things that come up. And here's, here's the kicker, right? I could have a child that's born to totally normal, neurologically functioning, the perfect number of chromosomes, everything's great, and bad stuff still happens. And that's just life. And if we think about if-onlys, that's a really bad place to be because it, it focuses on a past we can't change and a future we can't predict. It takes us out of what we're, where we're at right now and what I can control is right now. I can control my behaviors right now. And what can I do right now that can make for a better tomorrow? That's what I can do. I can't do anything else. And that's really easy for me to say, trust me. <laughs> and that's why, I, that's why I still go to meetings. And that's why I still talk to friends from the program. And that's why I still read, I heard you reference, you know, The Body Keeps Score, which is the name of a book, right? That's why I still do that work. I, I caught that. I know. <laughs> I saw you hold up the book, you know, and that's why I still do that reading. And that's why it's a never ending process. And I know people who, you know, are not non-drinking alcoholics who go to meetings, not because they need to stop drinking. They go to meetings because they need, they, they keep learning. And that's the point, right? Is that it's a journey. It's a road to recovery. It's a journey. It's a process. And that what, you know, the, the recovery work helps us in all areas of life because they're pretty foundational concepts at the end of the day right? Whether or not we're dealing with an active addiction or a situation or trauma, they're just good concepts of keep it simple. You know, how important is it? One day at a time, let it begin with me. Progress, not perfection. All these slogans are really good no matter what. <laughs> and we can apply them everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And when you just read those slogans on a piece of paper, they don't make much sense. But when you go see other people applying it in practice, that's, that's how you kind of learn. Uh, I feel like we had a mini Rare Disease Anonymous meetup here in this podcast. <laughs> but it was exceptional. We absolutely did. And you know, if you and if you and one of the things we say at the end of meetings is keep coming, it works if you work it and you're worth it, so work it. And so if this was a meeting, right? It's like keep coming, right? Keep coming back. Keep keep finding others with whom you can speak. Even if you have a meeting that's close by, these meetings tend to be very open and very welcoming. And, you know, I'm not telling people to go to Al-Anon, but I'm saying that there needs to be something like this, you know, that, that is almost like a rare disease, a, you know, parents anonymous. That's, we need to work on that abbreviation. It doesn't quite flow off the tongue. But you're worth it right? You are worth it. Not just your child's worth it, not just your family's worth it, but you're worth it. You come to these meetings often for someone else, you stay for yourself. And you have to focus on yourself a bit and your own well-being to make yourself better at helping others with their well-being. I, I just love that. <laughs> that. That idea. And I know as we have discussions, because we one of our co-hosts isn't here today, and, but when we have the discussions with Brittany, we all walk away from those meetings. I mean, we're not even we're not even recording. It's just our planning meetings and things, and we share. And I just know we all walk out lifted. How do we scale that now? How do we how do we do that? So whenever two meet, it's a meeting, and and just allow that movement to happen. Well, I will say if anybody's, you know, I know you'll be posting this. If people are interested in the concept, well, let's talk about, you know, scaling the concept, right? You know, and I'm happy to be, be happy to be part of that conversation and uh, ha happy to help people on that journey because I don't have it all figured out. I can only tell you what works for me, but at the same time, having 16 years of perspective and also having about six years of recovery work, I'm happy to uh, be a resource and of service. 
I think it'll be amazing if we if we set something up, um, especially for the rare disease world, because the kind of things we talk about generally when 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 parents of rare disease kids meet up is generally tends to be either to at least for me either to medical or 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 completely non medical, right? But there is this there is applying some of these concepts to these conversations and the, and the structure that it brings. Uh, I think it'll be phenomenal. So we'll we'll chat we'll chat offline about it. I look forward to it. I just want to say this has been fascinating. Um, I, I'm so glad that I'm going to give a shout out to John Novak for connecting us. Great job here because I could see lots of discussions coming from this this short little discussion. You mentioned before your blog, and I know that Sonas looked at your website. Where can people find out what you're thinking about these things? Just go to GaryCDavid.com. That's probably the best place because that has a reference to my Substack and also the Experience by Design podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds and also has a link to my professional speaking. So if folks are interested in, you know, having me come either online or in person and speak about these these topics to your group, just reach out. Always happy to do so. One of the one of the elements of recovery work is service. So, you know, always happy to chat about how I can help others who have needs that maybe what I can say can meet. So GaryCDavid.com would be the best place to go. Great. We will include that in the show notes. So I want to thank you again for your time and sharing your story. I just, I'm fascinated by it and I, I really appreciate the multiple perspectives you bring and the way you're able to step out from one to the other and kind of keep working the problem. That's just, that's extraordinary. So I just think it's been a great discussion. I'm so glad we had it. And for our listeners, for our listeners, this is going to be our last episode for season three. And it's, it's ending the, the year. So we're already planning for season four, which will start in February, probably just in time for Rare Disease Day. And we hope you'll join us then. Raising Rare is produced by Salem Oaks, empowering patients and caregivers to shape the future of medicine. CureGPX4.org is dedicated to finding a cure for SSMD. You can donate to CureGPX4.org on the Raising Rare podcast page or at CureGPX4.org. The SETD5 community is currently getting organized. We will let you know where you can donate soon. You can continue to follow Raghav and Everly stories next time on Raising Rare.